Welcome to Elucidations. I'm Stephen Chen, undergraduate intern for the podcast. In this episode, we have Professor Robin Dunbroff from Yale to discuss gender non-binary. Professor Dunbroff is an assistant professor at Yale University, working primarily on feminist philosophy and metaphysics. Their recent publications include "What Is Sexual Orientation" on Philosopher's Imprint, and "Moving Beyond Mismatch" on American Journal of Bioethics. Gender binary is typically understood as there being two discrete, exhaustive categories of gender, male and female. One problem of gender binary, as Professor Dembroff points out, is that a society entrenched in the idea of gender binary constrains a person's self-conceptualization and expression. Professor Dembroff then discusses how to understand the concept of gender queer or gender non-binary as a conceptual stance resisting the saturated dichotomy of masculinity and femininity. Other interesting topics covered include what other genders there are other than male and female, what are the patriarchy that the concept of gender non-binary is resisting, and what a world where gender is not institutionalized may look like. Hope you enjoy it. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Robin Dembroff, assistant professor of philosophy at Yale University, and they are here to discuss going beyond the gender binary. Robin Dembroff, welcome. Thanks for having me, Matt. So, I think a natural first question here is what the phrase "gender binary" means. I guess one thing that might suggest is like, so is it the idea that there are two genders, or what exactly is the gender binary? I think the way people tend to answer that question is just saying it's the idea that there are two genders. That's accurate, but not precise. What I would say instead is that it's the idea that there are two discrete, exhaustive gender categories. That is, there are two gender categories. They are defined neatly in opposition to each other, and every person falls into one of those two categories. Okay, good. So it's an exhaustive partition. Correct. Yeah. And just to be clear, the two genders are men and women. <laughs> yes. Interesting. So, what do you think? Are there any other genders besides those two? And given the way that I think about gender,、um, given that I am understanding the term gender as it is used in trans-inclusive communities, yes, I do think there are more than two genders,、um, despite the rights mantra. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's become this rallying cry on the right, right that there are only two genders. If you Google that phrase, there are only two genders. You get a lot of far-right websites. Okay, so the menu of possible gender options, I guess, is a bit bigger than. At least I was raised to believe it was. What are some of these other options? So often, some common identities include things like gender fluid, pangender, agender, gender queer, so on. Maybe we could take some of those in turn. So, like, what would pangender be? So the first thing to say, I guess, is that all of these terms are somewhat in flux, and they there is no single agreed upon definition of any of them. But I would say one of the most common understandings of pangender is someone who identifies with a variety of genders. And would that be identifying with a variety of genders, kind of all at once, or like switching between them, or like would you 
feel that you're simultaneously a man and a woman? Or how does that work? I think it's more the simultaneous. If it was a switching between, people tend to lean more towards the term gender fluid. Okay, so that was the next term in your list, gender fluid. So that's more like your you experience your gender as something that switches over time between several different things. Right. Yeah, I mean, two or more. Uh, sometimes people who are gender fluid will articulate their experience as moving between being in something like guy mode and feminine mode or different terms along those lines. And then agender, I guess, suggests that you don't have a gender? Yeah, that there are no options that are recognized within the gender taxonomy that one identifies with. Oh, that's interesting. So maybe you could be a gender and think, well, there might be some gender out there that I am, but I just haven't heard about it yet. Yeah, I mean, people don't tend to articulate it that way, but uh, I suppose one could identify as a gender while recognizing that there could be a possible society somewhere either in the future or the past or one that that person has never heard of that recognizes a gender that that person would identify with. Okay, and then lastly, what would gender queer be? So gender queer is also a term that's in flux. As I use the term gender queer, it's more the umbrella for all of these different identities. Um, and sometimes people like myself just identify as gender queer, meaning I don't identify within the binary, but there's nothing more specific that I have to say about what I do identify as. Okay, so in other words, like any of the previous three, or maybe anything else. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. So it's like, that's the one to me then that sounds the most like abstention. You know, when people are raising their hands and saying what they are, I'm just going to like abstain from that process. Yeah. For me, I use it as a synonym with non-binary, but the reason why I prefer genderqueer to non-binary is that non-binary is defined in terms of the binary. So it both reinforces the very thing that it's attempting to distance itself from. Whereas genderqueer is both somewhat political in nature because of the addition of queer to it, but also isn't defined in terms of the binary. Yeah, actually, let's maybe talk about the relation to queer. I guess historically it's meant something like gay or lesbian. What does that have to do with being gender queer? So, yeah, I mean, the term queer originally was a slur aimed at gay and lesbian people, but as the term has been reclaimed within the LGBTQ community, it's come to mean something more like a form of resistance to heteronormativity. So it has a political edge to it, um, more so than the word, words like gay and lesbian do. Part of that political edge comes from it not being defined in terms of the gender binary in the way that gay and lesbian are. So one can be queer without identifying as either a man or a woman, but one can also be queer while also identifying as a man or a woman. So it's a unifying sort of concept that brings a lot of people who don't fall under the norms of heteronormativity that aren't cisgender and heterosexual and puts them under one sort of umbrella where they can find political solidarity with each other. In terms of genderqueer, though, <laughs> the term originally... Actually, Ricky Wilchins originally coined the term, and originally it was meant as a descriptor, according to Ricky, not an identity. So the way Ricky originally meant the term was as a term that anyone who was seen as, to use their term, gender trash, could use to describe how their gender was in the world. So people who didn't conform to gender norms, either in terms of their bodies or in terms of their pronouns or in terms of their gender expression and so on. But it 
it evolved from that point into being something that people identified with as their gender rather than uh, just an adjective. So being genderqueer rather than a genderqueer woman or something like that. Yeah. Actually, that gets me to another question. I guess I have about two of these labels. So should we think of genderqueer as a new gender or should we think of it as not having a gender? And the same question for agender. I think in order to answer that question, we have to take a step back a little bit and think about what it means when you say, does it mean it's a new gender or not having a gender? So the term gender itself gets understood in a lot of different ways, even within the literature on the metaphysics of gender. So two kind of main camps of thought about what gender is, to borrow from Elizabeth Barnes, we can call the externalist and internalist camps. So on externalistic camps, Gender is about your social position. It's about what your position is in the social world on the basis of your perceived sexual features. So this tracks back to Simone de Beauvoir's claim that gender is the social interpretation of sex. On internalist accounts, gender should be understood more in terms of one's gender identity, where that's certain psychological features and in particular certain psychological relation between one's self-image or how one conceives of oneself and the social positions of certain people in the world or the kinds of norms that go along with recognized genders in one society. So when you say, is gender queer another gender? On either of those two accounts, no, I don't think it is. But also it's not not having a gender because someone who is gender queer on either of those two accounts will be understood as having a certain gender. Yeah, I can see why you'd say it's neither of those things because it's not like there's a super established social status of being genderqueer, like right alongside men and women, where we know what that is and we know what the um, we know what social role people who are genderqueer are expected to play the way we know, at least in our culture, what social role men versus women are expected to play. But then it's also not clear that there's anything that it feels like or whatever to be genderqueer. Maybe there are many different things it can feel like. Yeah, I think that's right. And one common thing that genderqueer people do say, though not all, again, um, as far as the what it feels like to be genderqueer, is it's more of a form of resistance to a certain conceptualization or understanding of who one is. So, uh, for example, one might say something like, I'm not a person wearing girls' clothes, I'm a human wearing human clothes. And it's not so much a claim that I'm not wearing clothes that are conceptualized as girl clothes by those around me, it's a pushing back against the idea that those clothes should be thought of that way. So in, in my mind, genderqueer is taking a certain kind of theoretical, conceptual stance against a world that takes these two concepts of masculine, feminine, man, woman, and so on, and saturates them everywhere such that everything is understood in light of those concepts. That's really interesting. So it's like maybe some of the terms we learn to go around using for each other have all these assumptions built into them about the way people are and the way people should be. So using a new set of terms, maybe whose exact definition is a little bit open-ended is just maybe a way of like trying to raise awareness about those assumptions and maybe get us to a place where we can start having different ones or something like that. Yeah, and I think even that will differ across different individuals who identify as genderqueer. For some people, it's more about just themselves, right? And the fact that they don't want those concepts to be applied for them for others, uh, particularly myself because I'm a philosopher, right? I mean it not just in terms of myself, but also this larger claim about how I think it would be better for the world to be. So maybe we could look at like a 
just a simple everyday example of how some of this stuff gets projected onto a person via the traditional Western gender categories as a way into thinking about how it might not get projected onto somebody in an everyday situation. There's a lot of empirical evidence from psychology about how people are treated differently, even just on the basis of their differently gendered names. So you get things like CV tests, where identical CVs with differently gendered names are given to employers, and the competence of those people that the CVs are supposed to be referring to are ranked drastically differently. So that's clearly, there's nothing else that would explain that difference other than what's being dragged along by gendered concepts that are being applied to the CVs. So that's an example. I mean, I wasn't, maybe I'm not exactly understanding what your question was, but that's an example of how the Western concepts of gender hugely affect how people are able to move through the world and how they're viewed by other people, even holding all other things fixed. Yeah, because the only reason somebody's gender, which information I only have access to through their name, the only reason that would influence my decision about who to hire has to be because of some prior belief I have about what genders are suitable for what types of careers or something like that. Yeah, as well as things like if a woman is in roles of leadership, she's much more likely to be seen as power-grabbing or bossy or aggressive. Whereas if a man has those same sorts of positions, he's seen as being ambitious and doing the things that he is supposed to be doing Mm -hmm. career-wise. I taught a course once on the philosophy of gender where we just tried to go through the basics of what genders exactly are and what the relation is to biological sex, if anything, and all that stuff. And a question I put to my students was, would it be better to live in a society where there were no genders in the sense of there were no social statuses that people were ascribed on the basis of their presumed reproductive capacities? Would it be better if just everybody had exactly equal status in that regard? And an interesting thing I found was that my students were like 50-50 split. So the split was between people who thought, yes, this sounds like a great idea, because what better way to eliminate prejudices and social expectations getting in the way of people's life goals, et cetera, et cetera, than to just not even think about men and women anymore. Uh, You can't discriminate on somebody on the basis of whether they're a man or a woman if you don't even think about whether who's a man and who's a woman anymore. So that's just one kind of brute force way to eliminate that. And then the other 50% were firmly in the camp of, no, I mean, I think um, it's totally fine to be a woman. I love being a woman. Um, Let's embrace the identity, but we'll try to eliminate all of the, you know, uh, offensive, nasty, noxious beliefs about how women have to be or something. Do you think there's a tension between those two alternatives? I think one thing I'd be curious to know from your students is how they were thinking of the term woman when they answered the question in the latter sort of way. If they want to strip the term woman of all of its social information, my guess is they were thinking of it primarily in a biological way or in terms of assigned sex. But if we want to strip the term woman of both of any of its social information as well as any of its anatomical associations, it's hard for me to understand what's left. I think that there could be something that's left, namely identifying in terms of a historical category. Yeah, I think that's that's what they were. I think that was sort of the idea. I think it was like, no, I want to be proud of like what we've all been through together. Sure, sure. But I think that's also compatible with the first option. 
So you could have a world where people identify as women in terms of identifying with a historical category or seeing themselves as standing in some kind of interesting, robust relationship to a historical category without having that category be the kind of category that's being used or is salient in social interactions. In fact, it's hard for me to understand how it could be used and be salient in social interactions if in this context it's supposed to be stripped of its social and biological connotations. One of the things I think about a lot is about the supposed tension between those who are fighting for women to be able to do whatever they want and and not have any social connotations attached to this identity between them and between genderqueer people and between trans women. So there's this kind of three-way tension that often arises between these groups with feminists sometimes accusing genderqueer people who said about 70%, last I checked, about 70% of people identify as genderqueer were assigned female at birth. So there's sometimes this idea that genderqueer people like jumped ship and they've abandoned their solidarity with women, so abandoned some kind of feminist obligation that they have to identify with women. Um, obviously, there's the sort of turfy argument that trans women are reinforcing dangerous stereotypes about women by being feminine if they are feminine while being assigned male at birth. You know, you get these kind of problematic finger pointings at other sorts of gendered groups. I think a lot of this often is just based on transphobia, right? Transphobia. Transphobia frames and helps us understand a lot of the infighting that occurs between different feminist groups. That said, I think a lot of it also can arise because of an incomplete understanding of the ideology that we're up against as trans people and as feminists, where I'm using those terms inclusively, obviously. So I think that when we're talking about the Western concepts of gender and we're talking about the Western post-colonial understanding of gender, we need to understand that it's multifaceted and different kinds of groups need to attack different axes of that ideology. So the way I like to think about this ideology is as a triangle that has three different axes. One of the axes is understanding gender as being the same as biology. Another is understanding gender as being split into binary, discrete, and exhaustive categories. And another is the idea that there are certain social stereotypes that one ought to conform to on the basis of one's gender. And if we think about the work that trans binary people like trans men and trans women are doing, the work that genderqueer people are doing, and the work that cis women who are gender nonconforming do, we're all fighting the same enemy, but from different points of attack. Okay, so currently there are maybe like sort of three different strands of feminism. And what do they all have in common? Well, maybe they're all attacking the patriarchy, but they're attacking sort of different aspects of it. So maybe one group of feminists is focused on the idea that there are only two genders and that the space of possible genders is exhaustively partitioned into them. Another group of feminists is um, pushing back against the limited social roles that have been uh, um, traditionally ascribed to women and trying to equalize the power structure. And then maybe another group of feminists is combating the assumption that there is a strict and absolute connection between the gender you were assigned at birth on the basis of your biological features and what gender you actually have. So it seems like, on your view, the patriarchy is pretty large and multifaceted and has a lot of different stuff going on. Maybe we could take a step back and think about what exactly is the patriarchy and what is it doing? Is it like a cabal of people? Is it like a set of beliefs that are widespread, that are wrong? 
Is it something we're all subconsciously participating in? Um, what exactly is the patriarchy? I tend to think of the patriarchy as a social system that is set up so that cisgender men, and in particular white heterosexual cisgender men, are afforded more power and resources than other people. It's important to note, too, that the patriarchy does that. That is the result of patriarchy. But we can also think of patriarchy as a kind of ideology that enforces, that reinforces that system. So we, we can also think of patriarchy as a set of expectations, norms, and beliefs that work together to keep those who are not cisgender, white, straight men from achieving or sometimes even reaching for those power and resources. And just to be clear, we're talking here not about some kind of like legally enforced patriarchy, but rather a set of social conventions that's enforced by social pressures and social policing. Yeah, I mean, I would not want to draw a distinction between the social and the legal, but the legal is only one part of patriarchy. So if we think, for example, about like consider Ireland, um, Ireland moved past its constitutional ban on abortion. And one of the main things that people were saying about that was that that ban on abortion served the patriarchy. It was a way to legally control women's bodies that aligned with social norms, but gave a particular kind of bite to those non-legal social norms. Or just considered the fact that your gender is on your driver's license. Right. That is a way in which... So think about the, what I said earlier, that uh, part of the patriarchal idea of gender, or the Western post-colonial idea of gender, is that it's split into binary, discrete, and exhaustive categories. That is very much reinforced under the legal system in America. Your passport, your driver's license, except for in a few states, and so on, has to say either M or F on it. Yeah, so that raises some interesting moral questions. So let's assume that I've that I don't endorse uh, either the label man or woman for myself. What exactly am I going to put on my driver's license? And what public restroom am I going to use? And what social expectations more generally should people have about me, if any, maybe none? So there's two kinds of ways of understanding your question. One is descriptive and one is prescriptive. So descriptively, if you ask what bathroom will I use, what language will I use, and so on, my answer is going to be different than the, the prescriptive or the question about how it ought to be. As far as how it actually is to navigate the world as a genderqueer person, it's incredibly difficult, largely because the world is saturated in a binary gender division and because most people don't have a concept of non-binary gender or of genderqueerness. What that means is that even if one is androgynous, one is not read as non-binary. One is read as a man or a woman who is violating gender norms in some sort of way. Um, so as far as what bathroom would you use, you'd probably still end up using the men's bathroom because you probably wouldn't have much of a choice about that. Um, just as I often use either the men's or the women's bathroom because often there isn't a gender-neutral bathroom option. Pronouns-wise, yes, I use they-them pronouns. Usually, though, people refer to me as he or she. And that's just the way that I have to navigate the world, given that it's set up in the way that it is. Prescriptively, though, what I part of what my identity is pushing for is for a world where there actually is space for people who do not see themselves as men or as women. Okay, so let's talk about what that world would look like. Would there be like 
gender neutral bathrooms everywhere and, and that's it? Or would there be like gender neutral bathrooms in addition to the current bathrooms? And, and I mean, of course, it's not all about bathrooms, but this is one <laughs> example. But, you know, and then would there be a third box you tick on your driver's license besides just male and female? Or maybe there'd have to be four or maybe there'd have to be 20 of them or what kind of place should society be making uh, for people with various gender identifications? So different genderqueer people are going to give you different answers to that question. So I'll just give you my own opinion. My own opinion is that it's bad for gender to be institutionalized. So I would like to see a world where driver's licenses and your passport don't have any gender markers on them. I would like to see a world where all bathrooms are gender neutral and where we don't need to have these sorts of gender divisions built into the very structure of how we move through the world. And what would you say to people who put a lot of stock in their gender identity and feel like really empowered when they can like publicly affirm it all the time? Would there be um, breathing room for people like that to be able to express their gender if society were set up in that way? Absolutely. I mean, you can think about the fact that we are able to communicate and affirm religious identities, racial identities, ethnic identities, citizenship, different national identities, and so on, without needing there to be American bathrooms and UK bathrooms and you know, so on. Those kinds of identities that are dear to us, we can still communicate in other ways without needing the actual structure of the physical world to mark them. Oh, my God. I need to use the New Jersey bathroom. Where is it? <laughs> Don't go in the New Jersey bathroom. <laughs> so you've argued in very interesting joint work with Daniel Wodak that it would be nice if even like linguistically we weren't presuming to know each other's genders all the time and uh, in the way that we inflect pronouns. So in other words, by saying he and she – Maybe it would be better if English was more like a lot of other languages in the world, like Turkish or Armenian, where you just don't mark gender on pronouns. Uh, so in the English version of that, I guess, would just be saying they, them, theirs for everybody. Would that be an accurate way to state your view? Yeah, I mean, if anything, you've uh, understated the view by saying it would be nice if English were that way. We've argued that there's an actual philosophical moral argument that English ought to become that way. I wonder whether you've talked to people who are native speakers of those languages and asked them whether their experience of moving through the world with a gender is different. I've talked to people who speak languages that don't have gender encoded in them, such as Finnish. But I think it's important to recognize here that the argument that we give can't just be about the language and abstraction from the rest of the culture that it's embedded in. So think about Turkish. Turkey is an incredibly gendered society that marks genders in a lot of ways besides language. So one thing to note about English is I think that the argument has more power towards, in fact, gender neutrality as far as how people are able to move through the world because we have other kinds of gendered freedom. Of course, we still don't have a lot, but we have more than Turkey does in terms of people's ability to play between different modes of gender expressions. So one motivation for this idea that I find really interesting is the idea that maybe there should be some kind of confidentiality expectation with gender. In other words, a person should be able to not say what their gender is if they don't feel like saying what it is and tell other people about it if they feel like it, but it should be up to the person. Why is that the case? 
Yeah, so I want to back up a little bit on that question, actually, because just the idea that gender should be private is going to be understood differently by different people, depending on how they think about gender. And I think, in fact, the argument that gender should be private holds no matter how someone's thinking about it. So suppose we're talking to someone who thinks that gender is the same as biological sex or assigned sex. In that case, I think the argument still holds for reasons that have been argued by Talia Betcher. So if when you say he and she, what you're actually doing is providing a euphemism for what kind of genitals that person has, that seems hugely invasive. And Talia Betcher has actually argued that it's a kind of, I don't know if she actually uses the term sexual assault, but certainly a kind of infringement on one's sexual autonomy to be constantly communicating your ideas about what's underneath that person's clothes with what language you use for them. But suppose you think that gender is instead this, uh, as you have this internalist view where gender is about gender identity and that when you use he or she for someone, you're encoding information not about what their body is like, but instead about what their gender identity is. In that case, I think the argument still holds because then you're saying, I have a right to my mental states and how I think about myself. I don't have any kind of obligation to communicate that information to people constantly or have other people guess what that information is and communicate it to other people. I have a kind of first personal right to my mental states. So in other words, no matter what you think gender is, it seems like it's going to have to be something that's private. Yeah. Or at least that you have a right to not have other people be constantly guessing and communicating what they think that information is. I mean, it's really creepy. You go through TSA and for those of you who actually pay attention to these things. You already know this, but I'm just going to say it because I find that a lot of my cisgender friends have never realized this. When you go through airport security at TSA and you go through those body scanners, the TSA literally has a pink button and a blue button that they push based on what they guess your genitalia is like. And then the body scanner says that you have an anomaly or not based on whether they've guessed correctly. And I find that incredibly creepy. And not only creepy, but a kind of violation of my autonomy over my body when they do that. But note that we do that to each other all the time when we use pronouns. The TSA example is just a very obvious example of the same sort of process that we do constantly with each other. Right. So even before airports all introduced millimeter wave full body scans, it's like... That's just a technological extension, maybe, of what we're implicitly doing with each other anyway all the time. Right. So it seems like we've been circling around the view that we should strive to have a society in which this practice of constantly speculating about each other's genders slash biological sexes is no longer something we all do. And, you know, it becomes information that each person can make available if they want to, but it's strictly on a voluntary basis. But it also seems, I think, pretty self-evident that we're very far from that political ideal right now. So if we wanted to kind of like nudge our current system more in the direction of the ideal that you just described, uh, what should we do? I think there are different things that we can do on different levels of systematicity. So at an institutional level, there are certainly things that can be done. We can strive towards gender-neutral jurisprudence. We can strive towards removing gendered information from legal documents. We can push institutions to make their buildings and their employee rules and dress codes and so on gender-neutral. On an interpersonal level, I think one thing we can do is not presume to know someone's pronouns until they tell us what they are. That's a huge one, right? So if you're if you meet someone new, default to they them pronouns until 
you ask them what they are. And that might be awkward. Having that conversation, what are your pronouns, is very hard for people to get used to. But trust me, once you start doing it, it becomes much more natural. And in most cases, people appreciate it when you ask them. Robin Dembroff, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Matt. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.